Hey guys, welcome back. It is time for another episode of Follow Me Into the Dark. Hope you guys have had a good couple of weeks. I am Michelle, of course, your host. And this week, so I started doing the episode and the research specifically on a place called Eloise Asylum. But then I totally went down this rabbit hole of mental illness treatments like a hundred years ago, the crazy shit that they would do. So I really dive into that a lot more. A lot of the reason I went sideways with this one is the Eloise Asylum is interesting and I'm going to totally talk about it. But as far as documentation of paranormal associated with it, really the only documentation is from some ghost hunters that have gone in there and done their investigations. There's not a lot of written documentation on this if you try to research it. Um, there's some, not a lot. So as far as um, where the topic goes, a lot of it is I just kind of got pulled into some of these weird, twisted, um, torturous methods of treating mental illness back then. And it really was intriguing and interesting. So. I kind of went down that rabbit hole. So we're starting with talking about Eloise Asylum. So let's go. It's said that the history of the Eloise Hospital is more like Michigan folklore. At its peak in the 1920s, the Eloise Complex was a small city with its hospital and asylum having 10,000 patients and a staff of 2,000. In its heyday, 12,000 people cohabitated Eloise, some working on an on-site bakery or a slaughterhouse, even enjoying themselves in the amusement hall. The complex had its own police department and fire department, and it had a post office. It had cattle. It had a greenhouse, had a cannery, a tobacco field, and at one point it had its own zip code. So it was basically its own town, its own city. Nankin was part of Wayne County, originally named Buckland Township, and it included what are now the cities of Livonia, Inkster, Dearborn, Redford, Wayne, and Westland. I don't know any of those towns, not familiar with any of that. I don't know if that means anything to any of you. But anyways, moving on. Eloise was one of the first hospitals to use x-rays for diagnosis. It was also home to the first kidney dialysis unit in Michigan. The complex eventually expanded. It was 902 acres with more than 70 buildings. In 19, no, excuse me, in 1839, two years after Michigan was made a state, Wayne County bought a 166 acre farm for $800 in Nankin Township in what is now Westland. The purchase included several farm buildings and a log cabin known as the Black Horse Tavern. After a wing was added, the cabin became the new Wayne County Poorhouse, and it housed 35 destitute people. The Poorhouse was a two-day travel by stagecoach from Detroit. The truth was that the county officials wanted somewhere to send like their lowlifes, the embarrassments, um, the, the people they didn't want out in society. 
the homeless, the poor, the drunkards, the thieves, the brawlers. They wanted to be able to ship them off somewhere and hide them. So what is a poorhouse, you ask? That's not really a word you hear nowadays. So let me explain what that is exactly. In a time before social services, society's most vulnerable people were hidden away in brutal institutions. So basically like what I just said, throughout the 19th and early 20th century, poor houses were a reality for society's most vulnerable people. These locally run institutions filled a need in a time before social security, Medicaid, section eight housing, um, they also exposed the stigma and shame society placed on those who were unable to support themselves. There really was an inequality um, of the poor. Um, they really were looked down on. And honestly, I feel like that's still true today. I think we deal with a lot of social issues. Racism is a hot topic, of course. But you know, the way poor people are perceived and looked down on and judged is still a big issue. I don't think it's talked about enough. It carries over all races. But back then, before government assistance, these were the people that were hidden and tossed away, basically. The concept of the poorhouse originated in England during the 17th century. Towns were expected to care for their poor and made a distinction between people who were old and unable to care for themselves and the able-bodied. People who were able to work were expected to do so, and they could be imprisoned if they refused. In a workhouse, men would receive a night's um, shelter and food, and if they were physically fit, they would have to break a given amount of stone for road mending in the morning before leaving. By the early 19th century, the poorhouse construction coincided with an increasingly, increasingly negative attitude towards poor people. These facilities were designed to punish people for their poverty and hypothetically make being poor so horrible that people would continue to work at all costs. Being poor began to carry an intense social stigma and these poor houses were placed outside of public view. So back to Eloise Asylum. Soon, the insane and feeble-minded were housed there. The mentally ill were housed on the upper floor of the pig barn, chained to the timber framing. It wasn't until 1881, when the asylum's first medical superintendent took over um, and was supervising the mentally ill, and he ordered that the chains be removed. In 1872, 157 acres adjacent to the poorhouse was purchased by the Katie family. Over time, the Eloise complex became a self-sufficient community. Like I mentioned before, it had its own dairy farm and a pig farm, bakeries, slaughterhouse, greenhouse, um, its own tobacco field, laundry, a police department, fire station, it even had a powerhouse, as well as three cemeteries. And these cemeteries is where they would bury the people that weren't claimed by their family or um, had nowhere else to go after they died. Well, that sounded stupid. Of course, they have somewhere to go, but not their body. That sounds even more stupid. Anyways, you know what I mean. Um, it wasn't until 1894 that the Wayne County Poor House was renamed. The United States Postmaster General approved Mankin Township's pe petition for a post office of their own. 
the postmaster made it so that post offices had to have only short names. They can only have a one or two word name and it couldn't resemble any other post office in the state. Their name couldn't be similar. So a recently retired postmaster, Freeman B. Dickerson, was largely responsible for the establishment of the post office in the township. As president of the board, he suggested the post office be named after his four-year-old daughter, Eloise. The board agreed, and they sent her name to Washington, D.C., and it was approved on July 20th. So what he must have thought to be this, you know, really cool gesture to his only child, naming something after her, and it, you know, turns out that her name becomes synonymous with one of the largest mental institutions in the United States. If he would have known that, he might have chosen differently. The Wayne County Poorhouse became known simply as Eloise. The complex consisted of a psychiatric hospital for the mentally ill and criminally insane, a poorhouse for the indigent, an infirmary for tuberculosis victims. And again, like I said, it grew to over 902 acres. But the facility was getting a lot of reports about patients being abused and beaten and neglected, unsanitary conditions, um, serious overcrowding. And as many as 125 women had to share five toilets. The mentally ill had no voice in their treatment, which might include electroshock therapy, insulin-induced comas, and lobotomies. The first patient there was Bridget Hughes. She was 16, and she was sent there by her family. She was admitted in 19, I'm sorry, 1842, and she died there in 1895. It became a dumping ground for people whose families couldn't or wouldn't take care of them. For the homeless and the poor, people are just looking for a bed and looking for food. During the 1840s, there was no distinction made between rational and mentally ill patients. Harsh restraints were used to separate the population. Patients of all ages, sex, indigence, and rational, they were all kept huddled together. The mentally ill were housed on the second floor of the building used um, to hold pigs. And for the first few years, people in the area complained about hearing the roaring and shrieking cries that would come from the people living there, intertwined and mixed with the squeals of pigs. There was a sewage plant that was constructed there in 1896 because the Rogue River was insufficient to carry away the nearly 80,000 gallons of sewage drained into it daily. In 1934, the inmate population, not patients, inmates, numbered 8,300, about 50% of them mentally ill. People often had to bring their own mattresses in order to be housed there and boredom was a major problem. Between waking and bedtime, the people sat there and stared at the walls, at their feet, at the windows. Inmates who were given passes to leave the grounds were usually arrested and fined, or they simply disappeared. So the facility was renamed Wayne County General in 1945, but all the locals still know it and call it 
Eloise. And as I said earlier, the facility was um, plagued by all these reports of um, the um, patients being mistreated. I guess there was reports of employee theft and mismanagement. Of course, the un unsanitary conditions. Um, at one time, 3,800 mental patients, including 300 with tuberculosis, were crammed into quarters designed for only 2,500. By the 50s, Eloise provided the newest form of treatment for the men mentally ill, calming hydrotherapy, sensory deprivation chairs, twirling chairs, steel cabinets in which staff would lock patients and then insert needles to put water directly in their skin. Straitjackets, shackles, all the usual, lobotomies, this is all what's going on. So just as scary as the ghost stories that come out of Eloise are these methods of, of therapy for the mentally ill um, back then. These are twisted. And these are the things that really kind of pulled me in when I was doing my research here. So let's talk about some of these methods or medical treatments used to cure mental illness back then. So isolation was the preferred method for mental illness. And in, this is beginning back in medieval times, um, which may explain why mental asylums became widespread by the 17th century. These institutions were places where people with mental disorders could be placed allegedly for treatment, but also often to remove them from the view of their families and communities. Overcrowding, poor sanitation, these were all serious issues in all asylums, um, is what it sounds like, not just Eloise, which led to movements to improve care, quality, and awareness. At the time, medical practitioners often treated mental illness with physical methods, and this approach led to the use of brutal tactics, like some I mentioned before, ice water baths, restraints, etc. The 17th century saw the age of reason and the scientific method develop and this is all going on in Europe and the rise of the asylum, which is to treat the mentally ill. And of course, like I said, it's keeping these people, the mentally ill out of the eyes of society, unless that society decided they wanted a laugh. Let me tell you about this. At one point, Bethel Royal Hospital, the asylum, was opened for public viewing, offering London's citizens the opportunity to wander through the areas of the asylum unsupervised and with direct access to the patients for two pennies each. In order to raise funds for the running of the hospital, suitable patients were displayed for the entertainment of whoever entered. As horrifying as this may seem, when they closed its doors to the public in 1770, things got worse because, of course, people aren't watching now. They're not under the public eye. So that's when the real horrors began. So mental illness affects many individuals in the United States. According to the National Alliance of Mental Illness, approximately one in five American adults experience mental illness each year. That's 46.6 million people. And children are affected as well. 
about 17% of people aged 6 to 17 experience mental health challenges each year. So things have been changing over the years for the better. Um, you know, this data has helped change the mind towards mental illness and more equality and made it a real thing, anxiety, depression. Um, there's more towards suicide prevention. So, you know, it's seen that there really is a connection between your mental health and your overall well-being. Obviously, duh. Thank God that there has been changes over the years. Um, but people haven't always had these views. And, and when you um, look back at these health treatments, of course, it, they have changed dramatically over the years. Um, but I'm going to dive more into a few of them right now, into some of these crazy methods. So first, to start, let me specifically talk about women back then. The crazy theories and the way that they were looked at and treated. No, I am not getting on some soapbox about women's rights right now. So simmer down, boys. I'm not doing that. But this is just some reality of the times. Let me tell you some of this. The concept of the weaker sex in the 1800s made women more susceptible to the charges of mental illness and emotional breakdown. Before the mid-1800s, women who suffered from depression or mental illness were believed to have an incurable disease of the soul. Many of these women were sent off to institutions or asylums. Some were even sent to the local priests for exorcisms. Because of the existing gender stereotypes, women who disagreed with their husbands or family could be committed without formal legal proceedings or an, a, a medical emergency. Institutional records indicate that women were labeled mentally ill and committed at a much higher rate than men. Being a woman in the 19th century would make any woman hysterical. A collective term then used to describe all manners of women's mental health issues, ranging from menstruation-related issues, pregnancy-related issues, postpartum issues, uh, chronic fatigue, um, anxiety. The word hysteria comes from the ancient Greek word for womb. So, thus, womb disease. Asylums were essentially warehouses for non-compliant non women. Once committed, these unfortunate women were subjected to a daily life of neglect and abuse. This only drove troubled women deeper into mental illness, regardless of why they were there. Women had no voice to protest, nor did they have any advocacy beyond the asylum gates. They lacked the solidarity to stand up for themselves or each other. Once admitted, it was next to impossible to be discharged. Bad treatment by attendants and terrible living conditions led to many asylum suicides from constant harassment, violence, loneliness, and despair. In the Victorian age, the perfect wife did not demand time or rights for herself. She was supposed to be subservient to the needs of her family, her husband in particular. Women with strong personalities and active minds could never 
conform to that role without sacrificing the core of their being. Unsatisfied, um, husbands could have their wives committed for stepping outside the boundaries of her role as a wife. That's messed up, people. So married women were sent to asylums for nymphomania, promiscuity, bearing an illegitimate, illegitimate child, or being the victim of rape. Let me say that again. You're the victim of rape and they can send you to an asylum. That's sad. Now, women who practice sex outside of marriage were accused of moral weakness and could be committed to an asylum. Um, many husbands used commitment as a convenient alternative to divorce. So why go through the messy divorce practice when you can just say, hey, my wife isn't listening to me. Let's throw her in the asylum. So by the mid 19th century, doctors began regarding mental illness as a medical problem. With little formal training, they tested their quack theories on mentally ill patients. So one of the most shocking examples of a treatment was um, by this doctor, a male doctor, who created a condition that he called hysterical paroxysm. Doctors would give female patients pelvic massages to release the women's pent-up libido and frustrations. It wasn't long before women were being treated for frustration and anxiety as outpatients in doctor's offices. Yes, you heard that correctly. The doctors would stimulate a woman to have an orgasm, all in the name of science. But the electric vibrator was invented towards the end of the century so women could self-treat themselves in privacy and in their own home. So doctors of this era believed women who tried to improve their station in life by asserting their independence getting an education, or living outside the family unit without a husband were considered suspect. Women who were outspoken or expressed discontent were labeled as mad if they refused to fit the stereotype or be that passive housewife. Many women were driven to mental illness just by the rigid, strict policies that were imposed on them by society. Okay. I'm going to go into some of these methods of treatment a little bit more. And some of them are kind of gross, like this one, trephination. This dates back to the early days in the history of mental illness. It is the process of removing a small part of the skull using an auger, bore, or saw. This practice began around 7,000 years ago likely to relieve headaches, mental illness, or even the belief of demonic possession. Not much is known about the practice due to the lack of evidence, but um, Paul McCartney even said once in an interview in 1986 in a uh, musician magazine that John Lennon once asked him and his wife, you fancy getting a trephining done? So why did people get this done? In ancient times, trephination was thought to be a treatment for a lot of ailments, um, even head injuries. 
and was also thought to be able to use for the treatment of pain. Um, some scientists also think that the practice was used to pull spirits from the body in rituals. Um, many times the person would survive and heal after surgery. Researchers have found scarring from trephination in skeletons, um, but the holes and injury to the skull had healed. Um, one example of an unsuccessful procedure is a medieval woman who died while pregnant. The woman's skull had the markings of the, the circular hole, like a trephination, and um, they said that their hypothesis is that the pregnant woman um, incurred preeclampsia or um, a condition, she probably had high blood pressure during her pregnancy. Something was going on. So she would was treated with a frontal trephination to relieve the intracranial pressure. Despite the intervention, she did not survive and died with the fetus in her womb. So, again, not a lot known about that one. Moving on, let's go to another one called bloodletting and purging. Though this treatment gained a lot in the Western world in the 1600s, its roots are in ancient Greek, in ancient Greek medicine. It was believed that disease and illness stemmed from imbalances in the body. So the approach is that an internal biochemical relationship was behind mental disorder. So bleeding, purging, and even vomiting were thought to help correct the imbalances and help heal physical and mental illness. And these tactics were used to treat more than mental illness. During that period, diseases like diabetes, asthma, cancer, smallpox, even a stroke were likely treated with bloodletting using leeches. Um, I'm sure you've seen that before in some old movie or whatever. They pull these leeches out and put them on people's skin to you know, suck blood out of them. Uh, let's talk about insulin coma therapy. This treatment was introduced in 1927, and it actually continued to 1960s. In insulin coma therapy, physicians deliberately put a patient into a low blood sugar coma because they believed large fluctuations of insulin levels could alter how the brain functions. Insulin comas could last one to four hours. Patients received an insulin injection that caused them to lose consciousness after their blood sugar fell. Risks included prolonged coma, in which the patient failed to respond to glucose, and the mortality rate varied between 1 and 10%. They switched from that to electroconvulsive therapy as a safer alternative to insulin coma therapy. Next, metrazole therapy. In metrazole therapy, physicians introduced seizures using a stimulant medication. Seizures began roughly one minute after the patient received the injection and could result in fractured bones, torn muscles, and other adverse effects. The therapy was usually administered several times a week. Metrazole was withdrawn from use by the FDA in 1982. While this treatment was dangerous and ineffective, seizure therapy was a precursor to electroconvulsive therapy, like I said, 
And note that electroconvulsive therapy is still used in some cases to treat severe depression, mania, and catatonia. Next, let's talk about hydrotherapy. Another treatment that was wildly used in the treatment of mental illness in the 17th and 18th century was the bath of surprise. In its original form, the bath of surprise was exactly like the dunk tank, except it was ice cold water. And it was an agitated, mentally ill patient being dropped into it without warning. Again, an effective but deranged way of sedating patients. In fact, it was deemed so effective that it evolved into hydrotherapy, a practice of continuous baths, mummifying a patient in wet cloth or spraying the patient with water that continued late into the 20th century. With a continuous bath, the patient was basically strapped into a tub with a canvas sheet covering the bath and just their head poking out. The bath could last for several hours to several days and most often used as treatment for insomnia and depression or suicidal thoughts. A hydrotherapy pack could be used um, with either cold or warm water depending on the illness being treated. Cold water was considered effective in treating manic depressive symptoms or any agitated or excited behavior in a patient. Patients were wrapped in sheets that were soaked in water, then wrapped around the patient mummy style. The patient would lay wrapped in wet sheets for several hours. The most brutal of the hydrotherapy treatments were the sprays. While they were compared to showers, they looked more like a hosing down. The patient stood in a shower-like stall, sometimes strapped in for support, while an attendant used a hose or a spraying station to bombard the patient with either hot or cold water for several minutes at a time. While shorter than the other hydrotherapy method, this one was more traumatizing and humiliating. Now let's talk about lobotomy. Today, the word lobotomy, you don't really hear it um, unless you're kind of joking about something. But do you really know what a lobotomy is? Have you seen Ratchet on Netflix? Because that's what I think of. That's what popped into my head when I was doing this research. A lot of Ratchet throughout this episode. That's what just keeps going in my mind. If you haven't seen it, it's pretty gruesome but it's pretty cool, really good. Anyways, by the 20th century, a lobotomy became a legitimate alternative treatment for serious mental illness, such as schizophrenia and severe depression. Physicians even used it to treat chronic or severe pain and backaches. But in some cases, there was no legitimate reason for the surgery at all. There's a surprisingly hist surprising history of lobotomies and its use in mental health. A lobotomy wasn't some primitive procedure in the early 1900s. In fact, lobotomies were performed well into the 1980s, which was shocking when I read that. And it was still going on in the United States, Great Britain, Scandinavia, and several Western European countries. In 1935, a Portuguese neurologist, Antonio Igas 
Moniz performed a brain operation that he called leucotomy in a Lisbon hospital. This was the first ever modern leucotomy to treat mental illness, which involved drilling holes in patients' skulls to access their brain. For this, for, for this work that he did, he actually received a Nobel Prize in medicine in 1949. The idea that mental health could be improved by psychosurgery originated from a Swiss neuro neurologist he operated on six patients with schizophrenia and reported a 50% success rate, meaning the patients appeared to be calmed down. He, his colleagues harshly criticized his work at the time. In 1936, another neurosurgeon performed the first U.S. prefrontal lobotomy on a Kansas housewife. His name was Walter Freeman, and he believed that an overload of emotions led to mental illness and that cutting certain nerves in the brain could eliminate excess emotion and stabilize a personality. He wanted to find a more efficient way to perform the procedure without drilling into a person's head, like the original guy did. So he created this 10-minute uh, transorbital lobotomy, known as the ice pick lobotomy, which was first performed at his Washington, D.C. office, January 17, 1946. Freeman would go on to perform about 2,500 lobotomies. Known as a showman, he once performed 25 lobotomies in one day. To shock his audiences, he also liked to insert the picks in both eyes simultaneously. The procedure went as follows. As those who watched the procedure described it, a patient would be rendered unconscious by electroshock. Freeman would then take a sharp ice pick-like instrument, insert it above the patient's eyeball through the orbit of the eye into the frontal lobe of the brain, moving the instrument back and forth. Then he would do the same thing on the other side of the face. Freeman's ice pick lobotomy became wildly popular. The main reason is that people were desperate for treatments for serious mental illness. And again, this is a time before there was medications to treat this and mental asylums were overcrowded. There were some very unpleasant results and very tragic results, but there was also some good results and everything in between. Lobotomies weren't just for adults either. One of the youngest patients was a 12-year-old boy. He was interviewed in 2006 when he was 56 years old. And at the time he was working as a bus driver. And he said, and his name was Howard Dully. And he said, if you saw me, you'd never know I'd had a lobotomy. The only thing you'd notice is that I'm very tall, weigh about 350 pounds but I have always felt different. Wondered if something is missing from my soul. I have no memory of the operation and never had the courage to ask my family about it. So you know the reason for his lobotomy, this 12 year old? His stepmother said that he was defiant and daydreamed and even objected to going to bed. So this, kind of sounds like a typical 12 year old boy he 
was even taken to multiple doctors and was told, no, he's just a normal boy. Nothing's wrong with him. Just a normal boy. But, you know, the stepmom was mad because he wouldn't go to bed and he was, you know, a little unruly. So he got a lobotomy. So the U.S. performed more lobotomies than any other country. Sources vary on the exact number, but it's between 40 and 50,000. And that the majority of that took place in the 40s and 50s, like late 40s, um, early 1950s. And then in 1950s, some nations um, started outlawing it. Germany, Japan, um, the Soviet Union prohibited the procedure in 1950, stating that it was contrary to the principles of humanity. Treatments such as lobotomy and electroconvulsive therapy are widely known, but there were many other creative methods in the psychiatric practice um, used in treating mental illness. Beginning in the 17th century, lasting all the way up to the 20th century, one treatment that became popular in the 1700s was something called the swinging chair. And that's something I mentioned before as one of the methods that were used in Eloise. So it was rotational therapy. With this therapy, developed by Charles Darwin's grandfather, actually, was based on his observations of children spinning themselves in order to induce vertigo, resulting in laughter. So he believed that this could work with an adult as well and developed a rotational chair where a person was placed in a chair, often with a box around their head or body to impede their sight, and then spun by hand until they experienced vertigo. Uh, sedation, nausea, vomiting, or uncontrollable bowel movements. It was co-signed as a treatment by Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of American psychiatry, and so it rose to popularity in the U.S. and in England. It was reportedly very effective as a threat in sedating unruly patients. Now, confinement has always been a popular way to deal with psychiatric patients who are experiencing a breakdown. Confines have ranged from chains to cages to straitjackets, but the most terrifying of all was the Utica crib. This was popularized in the United States in 1846. It was used at the New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica. It was similar to a crib but with way less space and a caged lid, and for adults. The patient would be laid in the narrow and cramped crib and locked in it for hours in order to sedate them. Patients who were thrashing around the crib would often come out very quiet and well-behaved. But it fell out of favor when the Sunday Herald published an interview with New York Dr. William Hammond, who was famous for his advocacy to remove restraints from psychiatric treatment. Dr. Hammond was quoted as describing the Utica crib as a barbarous and unscientific instrument, stating, it is a bed like a child's crib with slatted sides, 18 inches deep, six feet long and three feet wide. It has a slatted lid, which shuts with a spring lock 
a lunatic put in it can barely turn over. There is not as much space between the patient's head and the lid as if he were in a coffin. He is kept in this crib at the will of the attendant, the key being in the possession of the latter and not of a physician. Patients have sometimes died in these cribs. He suggested that a padded room would be a much more effective alternative. So I just have to say, aren't you grateful that we treat mental illness in a different way today? That it's looked at as a legitimate concern? People aren't tossed aside and thrown away, made to live like they're not human? I will also say, I do also believe that the other side of that, that nowadays there is an over-medication, an over-diagnosed problem. I don't believe that every energetic boy needs ADHD medication, and I don't think everyone needs antidepressants. I think those are over-prescribed. I think there's a difference between sadness and depression, and working through sadness can strengthen you and be therapeutic. But throwing a band-aid on it and just shoving pills down your throat to mask and have fake happiness I think is overdone. Now yes there is legitimate depression. I am not talking shit to any of you that are on those pills and say that you should or shouldn't be. Don't go off your meds please because I say something stupid like that. So don't get me wrong. There is depression. Um and there's conditions that definitely benefit from modern medicine. But it just seems like there's a lot of pills that are just thrown at anyone who says that they're sad or they have a hard time dealing with something. Honestly, I just wish therapy was more affordable to everyone and acceptable by everyone. And you weren't looked at as weak to seek therapy. Maybe things would be different. But again, I'm off topic. Bottom line, if you experienced mental illness, 100, 200 years ago, or was a strong-minded woman, a defiant housewife, an unruly child, boy, you were screwed if you were sent to one of these places. Holy hell. I couldn't imagine. Could you imagine these things that are deemed therapy, therapeutic? Yikes. You're being forced to have a lobotomy or hosed down or restrained. Anyways, back to Eloise. So in 1955, the Michigan Society of Mental Health calculated that on a per patient basis, Wayne County General was the most expensive mental hospital in the world. Farming stopped in 1958. As unused buildings at the complex were closed, most were raised rather than repurposed. Tunnels once used to shuffle patients between buildings were sealed off as a at access points. By the 1960s, new theories for treatment of the mentally ill were developing. Psychiatrists began experimenting with brain chemistry, treating patients with pills and powders. The problem of mental illness in America grew so large that institutions couldn't house everyone who needed service. A new approach evolved called deinstitutionalism. Mental hospitals no longer provided long-term care, but returned patients to society as soon as possible after managing their treatment through home care or outreach or halfway houses. 
Those who slipped through the cracks in the system made a life on the streets by sleeping in cardboard boxes or living in culverts or under freeway overpasses. Sad. Some panhandled for spare change while others railed at the sky and the demons tormenting their souls. You've seen those out there. That, that breaks my heart. You know, there's, there is a big homeless problem and when you pass one of them that is obviously, obviously mentally ill and needs help, that's what's sad because that person needs help and they're not getting it and instead they're living on the streets. Um, go to Vegas. You see a lot of it. Anyway, many of these unfortunate people ended up in the uh, criminal justice system. The psychiatric building at Eloise was vacated in 1973. Psychiatric care ended in 1977 when the state of Michigan took over mental health services from the county. In 1979, the name of the hospital was changed to Wayne County General. Between the 1890s through the late 1940s, Eloise had its own morgue, three cemeteries, with 7,145 burials of unclaimed bodies, each grave marked by a cement block with a number molded into it. The burials were discontinued in 1948 when the Michigan legislature passed a law to use the bodies of unclaimed wards of the state as cadavers for medical training. So I also want to mention that the facility actually had a radium treatment for cancer, and the sanitarium was once one of the first to use open air treatment for tuberculosis patients. It was the largest asylum in the country, and it was the first asylum to perform a lobotomy. So I just went into the history of lobotomy. <clears throat> so you know that the first lobotomies weren't there, but this was the first asylum. Um, Eloise claims to be the first asylum to conduct lobotomies. And so the farm operations um, ceased in 58. After the Great Depression, the population of the complex really started to decrease. Um, and also with all the reports of violence and, and the shit that was going on there and the neglect and all of that. So by 58, the farm operations stopped. And then the psychiatric division began to close in 77 when the state took over. Uh, Eloise's last patient left in 1979, and Eloise officially closed in 1981, being a victim of financial problems and mental health care reform. Wayne County sold most of Eloise's grounds to the Ford Motor Company and their developers. It did just recently sell again. Um, in the last articles, are talking about um, not knowing exactly what they're, they talk about demolishing it actually. So I don't know if that's actually what happened or not. So um, there was a lot of procedures that were carried out in those tunnels that were below the hospital. And after it closed and the rooms off the tunnels were found vials containing bits of brains from lobotomies and uh, just other random body parts apparently were found in jars so it was definitely a formidable place and during its decaying and demolition period the curious and the workers at the site were convinced that the dead weep and walk within those wretched grounds 
maybe they still do. Visitors have reported odd occurrences on the hospital grounds for years after it's been closed. There's been reports of people finding medical waste, like I said, and other strange items. Some have reported finding jars of human body parts. I already said that. And they also have found a lot of documentation that are outlining all those strange medical procedures they did. Creepy snapshots of patients in the abandoned building that were torn down in the 80s were found. Um, a building employee who declined to give their name because they weren't authorized to speak with the media. But they said that an occasional interaction with the paranormal isn't unheard of. I'm serious, the employee said with a hearty laugh, recalling an incident where a couple of children trotted up the nearby staircase only to turn around and report that a guy was sitting on the steps. He was in Bermuda shorts and he was just sitting there, the employee says. They saw him. We didn't see him. But there's been some shadows, you know. That's it. I would love to talk to them. Now, Paranormal investigators have gone there uh, many times, and one group um, claims that they saw the spirit of a woman wearing white and often seen on the upper floors and roof. Others have claimed to hear moaning, screams, and roars throughout the old grounds. Some believe that they are the souls of the tormented patients. The old Eloise graveyard is also said to be haunted. One ghost hunting group that went there recently, um, they went to examine the basement of the building because it was closed off before. It was closed off for decades because it was flooded. And then it, it's been recently drained. So they went back down there and they said it was just very eerie. He said, uh, the, the um, paranormal investigator, he said, you sense someone else is down there, even though you are by yourself. It was one of the most eerily quiet places I've ever been. He could hear water dripping and what sounded like shuffling footsteps. I apologize if you just heard banging. I didn't mean to do that. That's my husband doing yard work right outside the window that the studio is in. Anyways... It happened at the, the right timing, I guess, when I'm talking about weird noises in a haunted place. Anyways, um, the guy said he could hear water dripping and what sounded like shuffling footsteps. So, like I said, not a lot of info on the actual paranormal uh, things that are cut. There's some footage out there that you can watch. I didn't see anything too overwhelmingly convincing. Now, Eloise Dickerson, um, the little girl that it was named after, she died in 1982 at the age of 93. And um, there was a time, I don't know if they're still doing it, because I'm not sure what the status is on the cell of it. I mean, the cell was a couple years ago, but I'm not sure what they're doing with it now, because I, like I said, there was rumor that they were going to tear it down. But there was, um, they were doing tours, ghost tours. Um, you could go and pay and do a ghost tour there. So, so that is the Eloise that is a lot of mental illness treatment um crazy crazy shit i can't believe some of the stuff they got away with but it's all i guess you know if you don't experience and do uh some of these ex um experiments and the crazy shit you don't 
get past to the stuff that we do know what works, right? Trial and error, I guess you could say. But um, I don't know. I think if something's only working 50% of the time, I don't know how successful that is. And uh, I don't know. Some of that shit's just really crazy. Um, and the fact that it went on till, I mean, some of it until the 1980s, which wasn't that long ago. At least it doesn't feel like it's that long ago. I'm somebody who's still stuck in the 80s. So to me, it feels like the 80s were just yesterday. But anyways, guys, that was uh, that was cool doing all that, uh, looking into the mental illness, just all the aspects of it and the crazy stuff. So I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Um, that is it for me. I am out of here. I'm going to go enjoy the rest of my day. You guys have a great couple of weeks. Again, my links to follow me and contact me are in the, um, the episode description. So just click on those and I will be posting pictures of this crazy place. And I'm, I'm going to post pictures also on a lot of uh, just some of these crazy, crazy therapies that I came across. So those are all going to be on Instagram and Facebook. But again, thank you again for joining me, guys. Everybody take care, stay well, and until next time, stay dark, my friends. Bye.